Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 88, on the Cult of Personality and its Consequences. This is a special podcast today, as I haven't written a script for it. No, don't worry, I'm not going to do this off the top of my head or off my cuff. It's a speech that I want to read to you by Nikita Khrushchev. And I found an edited version of the speech was delivered by Nikita Khrushchev to the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the USSR in Moscow on February 25th, 1956. So why this speech? Well, against what it says in the title, that it's a uh, secret speech, it was very well known to the uh, general world after uh, the speech was given. Within months, it was spread. There were uh, copies of it, even though there was no stenographer there. But Khrushchev had it leaked to uh, some of the Comintern and other communist members in the Eastern Bloc first, and then it kind of got out to the rest of the world. And it's a very important speech because we now have to break from Stalin. The people were inured with his power, the fear that was there, and it had to be broken. They had to stop the fear that was going through people. They had to get away from the cult of personality of Stalin and have a, basically forge a new USSR. Now, mind you, this is not a you know, nice bunch of guys that are uh, taking over from Stalin. Many of them helped Stalin with his atrocities. But they wanted to get away from the way Joseph Stalin did things and make sure that they set it up so it would never happen again. They also had to bury Beria because that was the beast who had many of them in fear as well, and they had just executed him. So we're going to read this speech, or I'm going to read this speech, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it gives you a little bit of an idea of who Nikita Khrushchev was and what kind of problems that he was facing and how he wanted to break the grip that Stalin had on his people. So without further ado, the secret speech delivered by the first party secretary at the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, February 25th, 1956. Comrades, in the report of the Central Committee of the Party at the 20th Congress, in a number of speeches by delegates to the Congress, as also formally during the plenary CCCPSU sessions, quite a lot has been said about the cult of the individual and about its harmful consequences. Allow me, first of all, to remind you how severely the classics of Marxism-Leninism denounced every manifestation of the cult of the individual. In a letter to the German political worker Wilhelm Bloss, Marx stated, quote, From my antipathy to any cult of the individual, I never made public, during the existence of the international, the numerous addresses from various countries which recognized my merits and which annoyed me. I did not even reply to them except sometimes to rebuke their authors. Engels and I first joined the secret society of communists on the condition that everything making for superstitious worship of authority would be deleted from its statute. The great modesty of the genius of the revolution, 
Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, is known. Lenin had always stressed the role of the people as the creator of history, the directing and organizational role of the party as a living and creative organism, and also the role of the Central Committee. Marxism does not negate the role of the leaders of the workers' class in directing the revolutionary liberation movement. While ascribing great importance to the role of the leaders and organizers of the masses, Lenin at the same time mercilessly stigmatized every manifestation of the cult of the individual, inexorably combated the foreign to Marxism views about a hero and a crowd, and countered all efforts to oppose a hero to the masses and to the people. Lenin taught that the party's strength depends on its indissoluble unity with the masses, on the fact that behind the party follow the people, workers, peasants, and intelligentsia. Only, only we will win and retain the power, said Lenin, who believes in the people, who submerges himself in the fountain of the living creativeness of the people. During Lenin's life, the Central Committee of the Party was a real expression of collective leadership of the party and of a nation. Being a militant Marxist revolutionist, always unyielding in matters of principle, Lenin never imposed by force his views upon his co-workers. He tried to convince. He patiently explained his opinions to others. Lenin always diligently observed the norms of party life that were realized, that the party statute was enforced, that the party congresses and the plenary sessions of the Central Committee took place at the proper intervals. In addition to the great accomplishments of V. I. Lenin for the victory of the working class and of the working peasants, for the victory of our party and for the application of the ideas of scientific communism to life, his acute mind expressed itself also in this that he detected in Stalin, in time, those negative characteristics which resulted later in grave consequences. Fearing the future fate of the party and of the Soviet nation, V. I. Lenin made a completely correct characterization of Stalin, pointing out that it was necessary to consider the question of transferring Stalin from the position of Secretary General because of the fact that Stalin is excessively rude that he does not have a proper attitude toward his comrades, that he is capricious and abuses his power. Vladimir Ilyich said, quote, Stalin is excessively rude, and this defect, which can be freely tolerated in our midst and in contact among us communists, becomes a defect which cannot be tolerated in one holding the position of the Secretary General. Because of this, I propose that the comrades consider the method by which Stalin would be removed from this position and by which another man would be selected for it. A man who, above all, would differ from Stalin in only one quality, namely greater tolerance, greater loyalty, greater kindness, and a more considerate attitude toward the comrades, a less capricious temper, etc. As later events have proven, Lenin's anxiety was justified. In the first period after Lenin's death, Stalin still paid attention to his advice. But later, 
he began to disregard the serious admonitions of Vladimir Ilyich. When we analyze the practice of Stalin in regard to the direction of the party and of the country, when we pause to consider everything which Stalin perpetrated, we must be convinced that Lenin's fears were justified. The negative characteristics of Stalin, which, in Lenin's time, were only incipient, transformed themselves during the last years into a grave abuse of power by Stalin, which caused untold harm to our party. Stalin acted not through persuasion, explanation, and patient cooperation with people, but by imposing his concepts and demanding absolute submission to his opinion. Whoever opposed this concept or tried to prove his viewpoint and the correctness of his position was doomed to removal from the leading collective and to subsequent moral and physical annihilation. This was especially true during the period following the 17th Party Congress, when many, when many prominent party leaders and rank-and-file party workers, honest and dedicated to the cause of communism, fell victim to Stalin's despotism. Stalin originated the concept, enemy of the people. This term automatically rendered it unnecessary that the ideological errors of a man or men engaged in a controversy be proven. This term made possible the usage of the most cruel repression, violating all norms of revolutionary legality, against anyone who in any way disagreed with Stalin, against those who were only suspected of hostile intent, against those who had bad reputations. This concept, enemy of the people, actually eliminated the possibility of any kind of ideological fight or the making of one's views known on this or that issue, even those of a practical character. In the main, and in actuality, the only proof of guilt used against all norms of current legal science was the confession of the accused himself, and, as subsequent probing proved, Professions, confessions were acquired through physical pressures against the accused. Lenin used severe methods only in the most necessary cases, when the exploiting classes were still in existence and were vigorously opposing the revolution, when the struggle for survival was decidedly assuming the sharpest forms, even including a civil war. Stalin, on the other hand, used extreme methods and mass repressions at a time when the revolution was already victorious, when the Soviet state was strengthened, when the exploiting classes were already liquidated, and socialist relations were rooted solidly in all phases of national economy, when our party was politically consolidated and had strengthened itself both numerically and ideologically. It is clear that here Stalin showed, in a whole series of cases, his intolerance, his brutality, and his abuse of power. Instead of proving his political correctness and mobilizing the masses, he often chose the path of repression and physical annihilation, not only against actual enemies, but also against individuals who had not committed any crimes against the party and the Soviet government.
Here we see no wisdom, but only a demonstration of the brutal force which had once so alarmed V.I. Lenin. Considering the question of the cult of an individual, we must first off all show everyone what harm this caused to the interests of our party. In practice, Stalin ignored the norms of party life and trampled on the Leninist principle of collective party leadership. Stalin's willfulness vis-à-vis -vis the party and its central committee became fully evident after the 17th Party Congress, which took place in 1934. It was determined that of the 139 members and candidates of the party central committee who were elected at the 17th Congress, 98 persons, that is, 70 percent, were arrested and shot, mostly in 1937 and 1938. The same fate met not only the central committee members, but also the majority of the delegates to the 17th Party Congress. Of 1,966 delegates with either voting or advisory rights, 1,108 persons were arrested on charges of anti-revolutionary crimes, i.e. decidedly more than a majority. This very fact shows how absurd, wild, and contrary to common sense were the charges of counter-revolutionary crimes made out, as we now see against a majority of the participants at the 17th Party Congress. What is the reason that mass repressions against activists increased more and more after the 17th Party Congress? It was because, at that time, Stalin had so elevated himself above the party and above the nation that he ceased to consider either the Central Committee or the party. While he still reckoned with the opinion of the collective before the 17th Congress, after the political liquidation of the Trotskyites, Zinoviites, and Bukharinites, when as a result of that fight and socialist victories, the party achieved unity, Stalin ceased to an ever greater degree to consider the members of the party's central committee and even the members of the political bureau. Stalin thought that now he could decide all things alone, and all he needed were statisticians. He treated all others in such a way that they could only listen to praise him. After the criminal murder of S.M. Kirov, mass repressions and brutal acts of violation of socialist legality began. On the evening of December 1, 1934, on Stalin's initiative, without the approval of the Political Bureau, which was passed two days later, casually, the secretary of the Presidium of the Central Executive Committee, Yunokidze, signed the following directive. 1. Investigative agencies are directed to speed up the cases of those accused of the preparation or execution of acts of terror. 2. Judicial organs are directed not to hold up the execution of death sentences pertaining to the crimes of this category in order to consider the possibility of pardon because the Presidium of the Central Executive Committee, USSR, does not consider as possible the receiving of petitions of this sort. And three, the organs of the Commissariat of Internal Affairs 
are directed to execute the death sentences against criminals of the above-mentioned category immediately after the passage of sentences. This directive became the basis for mass acts of abuse against socialist legality. During many of the fabricated court cases, the accused were charged with the preparation of terrorist attacks. This deprived them of any possibility that their cases might be re-examined, even when they stated before the court that their confessions were secured by force, and when, in a convincing manner, they disproved the accusations against them. Mass repressions grew tremendously from the end of 1936, after a telegram from Stalin and Zhdanov, dated from Sochi on September 25, 1936, was addressed to Kaganovich, Molotov, and other members of the Political Bureau. The content of the telegram was as follows. <clears throat> we deem it absolutely necessary and urgent that Comrade Yezhov be nominated to the post of People's Commissar for Internal Affairs. Yagoda has definitely proved himself to be incapable of unmasking the Trotskyite Zinoviet bloc. The OGPU is four years behind in this matter. This is noted by all party workers and by the majority of the representatives of the NKVD. Strictly speaking, we should stress that Stalin did not meet with and therefore could not know the opinion of party workers. The mass repressions at this time were made under the slogan of a fight against the Trotskyites. Did the Trotskyites at this time actually constitute such a danger to our party and to the Soviet state? We should recall that in 1927, on the eve of the 15th Party Congress, only some 4,000 votes were cast for the Trotskyite Zinoviet opposition, while there were 724,000 for the party line. During the 10 years which passed between the 15th Party Congress and the February-March Central Committee plenum, Trotskyism was completely disarmed. Many former Trotskyites had changed their former views and worked in the various sectors building socialism. It is clear that in the situation of socialist victory, there was no basis for mass terror in the country. The majority of the Central Committee members and candidates elected at the 17th Congress and arrested in 1937 to 1938 were expelled from the party illegally through the brutal abuse of the party statute because the question of their expulsion was never studied at the Central Committee plenum. Now, when the cases of some of these so-called spies and saboteurs were examined, it was found that all their cases were fabricated. Confessions of guilt of many arrested and charged with enemy activity were gained with the help of cruel and inhumane tortures. An example of vile provocation of odious falsification and of criminal violation of revolutionary legality is the case of the former candidate for the Central Party Committee, Political Bureau, one of the most eminent workers of the party and of the Soviet government, Comrade Ikea, who was a party member since 1905. Comrade Ikea was arrested on April 28, 1938, on the basis of slanderous materials, without the sanction of the prosecutor of the USSR, 
which was finally received 15 months after the arrest. Investigation of Ikea's case was made in a manner which most brutally violated Soviet legality and was accompanied by willfulness and falsification. Ikea was forced under torture to sign ahead of time a protocol of his confession prepared by the investigative judges, in which he and several other eminent party workers were accused of anti-Soviet activity. On October 1, 1939, Ikea sent his declaration to Stalin, in which he categorically denied his guilt and asked for an examination of his case. In the declaration he wrote, quote, There is no more bitter misery than to sit in the jail of a government for which I have always fought. On February 2, 1940, Ikea was brought before the court. Here he did not confess any guilt and said as follows. In all the so-called confessions of mine, there is not one letter written by me, with the exception of my signatures under the protocols which were forced from me. I have made my confession under pressure from the investigative judge, who from the time of my arrest tormented me. After that, I began to write all this nonsense. The most important thing for me is to tell the court the party, and Stalin, that I am not guilty. I have never been guilty of any conspiracy. I will die believing in the truth of party policy, and I have believed it during my whole life. On February 4, Ikea was shot. It has been definitively established now that Ikea's case was fabricated. He has been posthumously rehabilitated. The way in which the former NKVD workers manufactured various fictitious anti-Soviet centers and blocks with the help of provocatory methods is seen from the confession of Konrad Rosenblum, party member since 1906, who was arrested in 1937 by the Leningrad NKVD. During the examination in 1955 of the Koranov case, Rosenblum revealed the following fact. When Rosenblum was arrested in 1937, he was subjected to terrible torture, during which he was ordered to confess false information concerning himself and other persons. He was then brought to the office of Zakovsky, who offered him freedom on condition that he make before the court a false confession fabricated in 1937 by the NKVD concerning sabotage, espionage, and diversion in a terroristic center in Leningrad. You yourself, said Zadovsky, will not need to invent anything. The NKVD will prepare for you a ready outline for every branch of the center. You will have to study it carefully and to remember well all questions and answers which the court might ask. This case will be ready in four to five months, or perhaps a half year. During all this time, you will be preparing yourself so that you will not compromise the investigation and yourself. Your future will depend on how the trial goes and on its results. If you begin to lie and to testify falsely, blame yourself. If you manage to endure it, you will save your head, and we will feed and clothe you at the government's cost until your death. This is the kind of vile things which were then practiced. When we look at many of our novels, films, and historical scientific studies, the role of Stalin in the Patriotic War appears to be entirely improbable. 
Stalin had foreseen everything. The Soviet army, on the basis of a strategic plan prepared by Stalin long before, used the tactics of so-called active defense, i.e. tactics which, as we know, allowed the Germans to come up to Moscow and Stalingrad. Using such tactics, the Soviet army, supposedly, thanks only to Stalin's genius, turned to the offensive and subdued the enemy. The epic victory gained through the armed might of the land of the Soviets, through a heroic people, is ascribed in this type of novel, film, and scientific study as being completely due to the strategic genius of Stalin. We have to analyze this matter carefully because it has a tremendous significance, not only from the historical, but especially from the political, educational, and practical point of view. During the war and after the war, Stalin put forward the thesis that the tragedy which our nation experienced in the first part of the war was the result of an unexpected attack of the Germans against the Soviet Union. But comrades, this is completely untrue. As soon as Hitler came to power in Germany, he assigned to himself the task of liquidating communism. The fascists were saying this openly. They did not hide their plans. In order to attain this aggressive end, all sorts of pacts and blocks were created, such as the famous Berlin-Rome-Tokyo axis. Many facts from the pre-war period clearly showed that Hitler was going all out to begin a war against the Soviet state, and that he had concentrated large armed units together with armored units near the Soviet border. We must assert that information of this sort concerning the threat of German armed invasion of Soviet territory was coming in also from our own military and diplomatic sources. However, because the leadership was conditioned against such information, such data was dispatched with fear and assessed with reservation. Despite these particularly grave warnings, the necessary steps were not taken to prepare the country properly for defense and to prevent it from being caught unaware. Did we have time and the capabilities for such preparations? Yes, we had the time and capabilities. Our industry was already so developed that it was capable of supplying fully the Soviet army with everything that it needed. Had our industry been mobilized properly and in time to supply the army with the necessary materiel, our wartime losses would have been decidedly smaller. Such mobilization had not been, however, started in time. And already in the first days of the war, it became evident that our army was badly armed, that we did not have enough artillery, tanks, and planes to throw the enemy back. Very grievous consequences, especially in reference to the beginning of the war, followed Stalin's annihilation of many of the military commanders and political workers during the 1937 1941 period because of his suspiciousness and through slanderous accusations. During these years, repressions were instituted against certain parts of military cadres, beginning literally at the company and battalion commander level and extending to the higher military centers. During this time, the cadre of leaders who had gained military experience in Spain and in the Far East was almost completely liquidated. After the conclusion of the Patriotic War, the Soviet nation stressed with pride the magnificent victories gained through great sacrifices and tremendous efforts. 
the country experienced a period of political enthusiasm. The party came out of the war even more united, and the fire of the war party cadres were tempered and hardened. Under such conditions, nobody could have even thought of the possibility of some plot in the party. And it was precisely at this time that the so-called Leningrad affair was born. As we have now proven, this case was fabricated. Those who innocently lost their lives included comrades Vozhnezhensky, Kuznetsov, Radionov, Popkov, and others. Facts prove that the Leningrad affair is also the result of willfulness which Stalin exercised against party cadres. We must state that after the war, the situation became even more complicated. Stalin became even more capricious, irritable, and brutal. In particular, his suspicion grew. His persecution mania reached unbelievable dimensions. Many workers were becoming enemies before his very eyes. After the war, Stalin separated himself from the collective even more. Everything was decided by him alone, without any consideration for anyone or anything. The unbelievable suspicion was cleverly taken advantage of by the abject provocateur and vile enemy, Beria, who had murdered thousands of communists and loyal Soviet people. The elevation of Vozhnezhensky and Kuznetsov alarmed Beria. As we have now proven, it had been precisely Beria who had suggested to Stalin the fabrication by him and by his confidants of materials in the form of declarations and anonymous letters and in the form of various rumors and talks. The question arises, why is it that we see the truth of this affair only now? And why did we not do something earlier, during Stalin's life, in order to prevent the loss of innocent lives? It was because Stalin personally supervised the Leningrad affair, and the majority of the political bureau members did not, at that time, know all of the circumstances in these matters, and could not, therefore, intervene. The willfulness of Stalin showed itself not only in decisions concerning the internal life of the country, but also in the international relations of the Soviet Union. The July plenum of the Central Committee studied in detail the reasons for the development of conflict with Yugoslavia. It was a shameful role which Stalin played here. The Yugoslav affair contained no problems which could not have been solved through party discussions among comrades. There was no significant basis for the development of this affair. It was completely possible to have prevented the rupture of relations with that country. I recall the first days when the conflict between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia began artificially to be blown up. Once, when I came from Kiev to Moscow, I was invited to visit Stalin, who, pointing to the copy of a letter lately sent to Tito, asked me, have you read this? Not waiting for my reply, he answered, I will shake my little finger and there will be no more Tito. He will fall. But this did not happen to Tito. No matter how much or how little Stalin shook, not only his little finger, but everything else that he could shake, Tito did not fall. Why? The reason was that, 
In this case of disagreement with the Yugoslav comrades, Tito had behind him a state and a people who had gone through a severe school of fighting for liberty and independence, a people which gave support to its leaders. You see to what Stalin's mania for greatness led. He had completely lost consciousness of reality. He demonstrated his suspicion and haughtiness not only in relation to individuals in the USSR, but in relation to whole parties and nations. Let us also recall the affair of the doctor plotters. Actually, there was no affair outside of the declaration of the woman doctor, Timaspuk, who was probably influenced or ordered by someone. After all, she was an unofficial collaborator of the organs of the state security to write Stalin a letter in which he declared that the doctors were applying supposedly improper methods of medical treatment. Such a letter was sufficient for Stalin to reach an immediate conclusion that there were doctor plotters in the Soviet Union. He issued orders to arrest a group of eminent Soviet medical specialists. He personally issued advice on the conduct of the investigation and the interrogation of the arrested persons. He said that academician Vinogradov should be put in chains. Another one should be beaten. Present at the Congress as a delegate is the former Minister of State Security, Comrade Ignatiev. Stalin told him curtly, If you do not obtain confessions from the doctors, we will shorten you by a head. In organizing the various dirty and shameful cases, a very base role was played by the rabid enemy of our party, an agent of a foreign intelligence service, Beria, who had stolen into, con into Stalin's confidence. In what way could this provocateur gain such a position in the party, and in the state, so as to become the first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union, and a member of the Central Committee Political Bureau. It has now been established that this villain had climbed up the government ladder over an untold number of corpses. Were there any signs that Beria was an enemy of the party? Yes, there were. Already in 1937, at a Central Committee plenum, former People's Commissar of Health Protection Kaminsky said that Beria worked for the Musavat, intelligence service. But the Central Committee plenum had barely concluded when Kaminsky was arrested and then shot. Had Stalin examined Kaminsky's statement? No, because Stalin believed in Beria, and that was enough for him. And when Stalin believed in anyone or anything, then no one could say anything which was contrary to his opinion. Anyone who would dare to express opposition would have met the same fate as Kaminsky. Comrades, the cult of the individual acquired such monstrous size, chiefly because Stalin himself, using all conceivable methods, supported the glorification of his own person. This is supported by numerous facts. One of the most characteristic examples of Stalin's self-glorification and of his lack of even elementary modesty as the edition of his short biography, which was published in 1948. This book is an expression of the most dissolute flattery 
an example of making a man into a godhead, of transforming him into an infallible sage, the greatest leader, sublime strategist of all times and nations. Finally, no other words could be found with which to lift Stalin up to the heavens. We need not give here examples of the loathsome adulation filling this book. All we need to add is that they were all approved and edited by Stalin personally, and some of them were added in his own handwriting to the draft text of the book. Comrades, if we sharply criticize today the cult of the individual, which was so widespread during Stalin's life, and if we speak about the many negative phenomena generated by this cult, which is so alien to the spirit of Marxism-Leninism, various persons may ask, how could it be? Stalin headed the party and the country for 30 years, and many victories were gained during his lifetime. Can we deny this? In my opinion, the question can be asked in this manner only by those who are blinded and hopelessly hypnotized by the cult of the individual, only by those who do not understand the essence of the revolution and of the Soviet state, only by those who do not understand, in a Leninist manner, the role of the party and of the nation and the development of the Soviet society. Our historical victories were attained thanks to the organizational work of the party, to the many provincial organizations, and to the self-sacrificing work of our great nation. These victories are the result of the great drive and activity of the nation, and of the party as a whole. They are not at all the fruit of the leadership of Stalin, as the situation was pictured during the period of the cult of the individual. Let us consider the first Central Committee plenum after the 19th Party Congress when Stalin, in his talk at the plenum, characterized Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Molotov and Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan and suggested that these old workers of our party were guilty of some baseless charges. It is not excluded that had Stalin remained at the helm for another several months, comrades Molotov and Mikoyan would probably have not delivered any speeches at this conference. Stalin evidently had plans to finish off the old members of the political bureau. He often stated that political bureau members should be replaced by new ones. We can assume that this was also a design for the future annihilation of the old political bureau members, and in this way a cover for all shameful acts of Stalin, acts which we are now considering. Comrades, in order not to repeat the errors of the past, the Central Committee has declared itself resolutely against the cult of the individual. We consider that Stalin was excessively extolled. However, in the past, Stalin doubtless performed great services to the party, to the working class, and to the international workers' movement. We should, in all seriousness, consider the question of the cult of the individual. We cannot let this matter get out of the party, especially not to the press. It is for this reason that we are considering it here at a closed Congress session. We should know the limits. We should not give ammunition to the enemy. We should not wash our dirty linen before their eyes. I think that the delegates to the Congress will understand and assess properly all these proposals. Comrades, 
we must abolish the cult of the individual decisively, once and for all. We must draw the proper conclusions concerning both ideological, theoretical, and practical work. It is necessary for this purpose, first, in a Bolshevik manner, to condemn and to eradicate the cult of the individual as alien to Marxism-Leninism and not consonant with the principles of party leadership and the norms of party life, and to fight inexorably all attempts at bringing back this practice in one form or another, to return to and actually practice in all our ideological work the most important thesis of Marxist-Leninist science about the people as the creator of history and as the creator of all material and spiritual good of humanity, about the decisive role of the Marxist party and the revolutionary fight for the transformation of society, about the victory of communism. In this connection, we will be forced to do much work in order to examine critically from the Marxist-Leninist viewpoint and to correct the widely spread erroneous views connected with the cult of the individual in the sphere of history, philosophy, economy, and of other sciences, as well as in the literature and in the fine arts. It is especially necessary that in the immediate future we compile a serious textbook of the history of our party, which will be edited in accordance with scientific Marxist objectivism, a textbook of the history of Soviet society, a book pertaining to the events of the Civil War and the Great Patriotic War. Secondly, to continue systematically and consistently the work done by the party's central committee during the last years, a work characterized by minute observation in all party organizations, from the bottom to the top, of the Leninist principles of party leadership, characterized, above all, by the main principle of collective leadership, characterized by the observation of the norms of party life, described in the statutes of our party, and finally characterized by the wide practice of criticism and self-criticism. Thirdly, to restore completely the Leninist principles of Soviet socialist democracy, expressed in the Constitution of the Soviet Union, to fight willfulness of individuals abusing their power, the evil caused by acts violating revolutionary socialist legality, which have accumulated during a long time as a result of the negative influence of the cult of the individual, has to be completely corrected. Comrades, the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union has manifested with a new strength the unshakable unity of our party its cohesiveness around the Central Committee, its resolute will to accomplish the great task of building communism, and the fact that we present in all the ramifications the basic problems of overcoming the cult of the individual, which is alien to Marxism-Leninism, as well as the problem of liquidating its burdensome consequences, is an evidence of the great moral and political strength of our party. We are absolutely certain that our party, armed with the historical resolutions of the 20th Congress, will lead the Soviet people along the Leninist path to new successes, to new victories. Long live the victorious banner of our party, Leninism. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. 
It was a different one for me, not having prepared a script, but it was one that I thought was very important for you all to understand what the problems the leadership was going through at the time. Stalin's death freed these people from the fear of being executed once they, of course, got rid of Beria, who was, again, the last one to have been executed and gotten rid of in that manner. I think you have to see how they were beginning to heal themselves from the great terrors and the purges and the plots that Stalin had whipped up. So I hope you just really enjoyed that and you, you know, took some time to soak all of what Khrushchev had said in and understand their mindset at the time. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Come visit us on the Facebook uh, fan club page, which has gotten a lot of new members recently. Thanks to everybody. We've gotten like dozens of people just joining up every week, which is great. They've made some fantastic posts, great links to YouTube videos about Stalin and Hitler and things like that. It's a great, great group of people. Thank you so much for all the information and the kudos that you give me on occasion there. Uh, criticisms are appreciated as well, so don't worry about that. Uh, also, uh, do remember that we do have a uh, iPhone app for the Russian Rulers History Podcast that you can get on iTunes. And uh, we are building our website at RussianRulersHistory.com, and hopefully that will be up in the coming weeks. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pull off a podcast for next week. I have to travel to San Francisco this weekend, which is why the podcast is up a little early. And I've got lots of family things to do and uh, business dealings to take care of. I'll do my best. I've started already on the next script, but we'll see if we can pull it off for next week. But as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.